Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 24th, 2021. Uh, yesterday, I did a very interesting show, I thought, with uh, Sam Quinones, uh, the Mexican American journalist, um, an expert on the various kinds of drug infestations, the opioid infestations in America. Um, and uh, we spoke about the development of what he called synthetic drugs in Mexico and the way in which it's gripped and perhaps destroyed or is destroying the country. I guess one country's bad fortune is another country's Good fortune. Uh, Quinones suggested that because now Mexico has become the center, the heart of the synthetic drug industry um, designed to import to the United States, other countries in Latin America, which have historically been associated with the drug business, uh, have, um, have been luckier. One of those countries is, of course, Colombia, a country perennially associated with the drug industry, particularly um, uh, in, the, uh, in the American media. Um, and there is quite a lot of good news today and yesterday coming out of Colombia. Uh, the United States, uh, the, here's a headline from the Washington Post today, is planning to lift the terrorist designation on the FARC organization um, uh, and the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, concurs. It's very unusual for both the Post and the Journal to agree on anything, but I think they both agree that this is good news for Colombia. Uh, the UN chief is visiting uh, Colombia uh, ahead of these talks and is suggesting that there are huge economic opportunities for the uh, ex-rebels, for the FARC uh, fighters. Um and in association with that, uh, a Reuters report today that uh, Colombia's armed forces seized, seized uh, $300 million worth of cocaine. These are not headlines, unfortunately, you see about Mexico, which um, is, I guess, in some ways, the new Colombia. Um, Colombia is a complicated country, though, much more complicated than our media suggests. It's not never has been and never will be just a country about drugs. And I'm thrilled. We haven't done a show on Colombia before, but I'm thrilled that I have a young journalist, Jordan Salama, who has a new book out. I guess it's about Colombia. It's a travel book about a, a journey he made down the Magdalena River, which is one of the major rivers in Colombia. And I'm thrilled that Jordan is joining us from uh, New York City. Uh, Jordan, before we get to the book, and congratulations, it's your first book. It's a debut book. It's already getting rave reviews. Um, talk a little bit about the, the current political climate in Colombia, this, uh, this deal with FARC and how it's changing the country, how it has changed the country and how it will change the country. Sure. So five years ago, uh, as Many people know a peace deal was signed in 2016 um, to officially demobilize 
the FARC, which was a, a guerrilla group that was the largest in the country and was locked in a 50-year, um, more than 50-year armed conflict with the Colombian state that involved paramilitaries and uh, drug cartels and the U.S. government as well, um, and it just kind of caused pervasive violence for 50 years. Now, in those five years since the peace deal, Colombia has been undergoing this um, very fragile, interesting, and kind of chaotic ca uh, transition. And um, lots has been going on, which I'd be happy to talk about. But this book very much looks at that transition through the lens of a journey down the greatest river in the country and the people, the stories of the people who live by its banks. Yeah. And the very fact, I think, that you could make that journey suggests that the country is dramatically changing. Do you think you could have made the journey 10 or 15 years ago, Jordan? There are people who, who had uh, made that journey 10 or 15 years ago. In fact, the Magdalena is pretty well traveled as a river. Um, it just looks so different every couple of years. As the title suggests, not only does the river itself change, but the kind of sociopolitical context of the place is so rapidly changing that I think that a journey 10 or 15 years ago would have looked extremely different. And in fact, you can read um, other books such as Michael Jacobs, uh, the British travel writer's fantastic book, The Robber of Memories, which recounts his own trip down the Magdalena, um, which looked very different than mine. In the same sense, uh, I did that trip in 2018, though the book just came out last week. Um, and I think that had I done the same trip this month, it would have also looked very different from the trip that I did three years ago. So um, there's just a, a lot that's changing. And I think that that's really and important. And it's usually, it's, it's pretty, I mean, in, Unfortunately, this show, like so many other shows, uh, is always focused on bad news. But Colombia is a country with, with a lot of good news. You, you say in your introduction that when you went originally to Colombia, I think you were um, you were a um, uh, a, um, a, a a student uh, at, at Princeton. Um, you 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 fancied yourself uh, as uh, the next Che Guevara. You might write a. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I well, don't know about the next Che Guevara. Well, maybe not the next Che Guevara. Yeah. I thought perhaps that you would write a, a motor star, a, a motorbike uh, diaries style book, or perhaps uh, an old uh, Patagonia Express style That's book, like, which yeah. uh, Paul Thoreau is a wonderful <laughs> book. How did you? get to writing about the Magdalena River and this remarkable trip that you did uh, down it, which is the, the narrative in the book. Sure. Well, the reference to the Motorcycle Diaries in the book is, is actually to the film, which I think very beautifully explores the early years yeah. of, of Ernesto Guevara, who then became... This is a book. This is a book podcast, um, uh, Jordan. We don't acknowledge films. We, we don't acknowledge it. films. Okay. No, I'm joking. Of course, it's a <laughs> film as well, but it's also an important book. Yes, of course. And I think that both the book and the film do a good job of of providing the perspective of a young person's journey through a continent that's that's changing. And in that way, I think that there is a small similarity with with what I tried to do here. Of course, then a lot of other things happened that um, that in fact actually ended up influencing the situation in Colombia that I do not try to replicate, but. Um, but, uh, you know, you also mentioned Paul Theroux in the old Patagonian Express. There's so many other, uh, travel writers who I admire, uh, how I came to do this trip and how I chose the Magdalena is kind of an interesting story. When I was, um, ending my first year as an undergraduate in college, um, I knew that I wanted to do some work in Latin America because my family's from Argentina. I had the language and I was very interested in, um, the natural world as well as, um, 
everyday stories of, of human life. And I was looking for an opportunity to be able to combine that with storytelling. Um, and it just so happened that I had an opportunity with the Wildlife Conservation Society, which runs the zoos and aquariums in New York, but also has conservation projects around the world to travel to a country in Latin America and help them out with some like rudimentary communications work. I mean, um, filming and writing about their projects across the country, a country. I didn't know which one it would be. One day I got a call that it would be Colombia. And, um, and you know, at the time it was 2016, it was actually before this peace deal was signed. Um, there was, there were a lot of concerns. There were my concerns. There were concerns from the university. There were concerns from my family and my friends about what I was getting myself into. And was this a safe place to go to? Because Colombia, as you mentioned, has a particular reputation and perhaps we can even say a stigma in the American media as a place where maybe at that time you shouldn't go. Um, so I called up somebody who I trust more than pretty much anybody else in the world, which was um, a woman named Sandra Munoz, who taught me how to play the piano when I was five years old. Um, she's from the Colombian city of Cali. And when I called her, she said, oh, my God, you must go. My grandmother will take you in. She'll take care of you. Um, her grandmother ended up uh, being a 96-year-old, very kind but bedridden woman who locked the door at 7 p.m. and didn't allow me to leave after darkness. It was her way of keeping me safe. So I started writing about my experiences at night um, from during the day. That was when I first started kind of writing as a journalist in, in earnest, but I didn't realize it yet. And then when it came time a few years later to, to find a topic for my undergraduate thesis, I looked back at those journals and I realized that if I wanted to understand a country like Colombia and its vast human and natural diversity, everybody said that I had to see this river called the Magdalena. So that's what I decided to do. Are you making money? But are you not sure you're doing all the right things with it? Are you investing it correctly? Are you saving it? Or are you somehow losing it? Is it falling between the cracks in your life? Does money stuff stress you out? It certainly stresses me out, and I'm sure it stresses out all of my listeners. Are you just winging it with your finances? I am, you probably are, and most of us do, because that is the nature of most of our financial self-management. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Facebook. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Playbook, the app for growing your own money. For the average user, Playbook helps boost their net worth by over $1.3 million. Yes, that's $1.3 million. There's no paperwork with Playbook. You just connect your own bank accounts and Playbook builds a plan to maximize your own tax advantages. Playbook tells you which tax-advantaged accounts you need, how much money to put into each of them, and even automates these processes for you. Money stuff can be stressful, we all know that, but Playbook makes it easy to review your own financial plan, track your own financial progress, and make changes at any time you want. Plus, it's all automated. Once your financial plan is in motion, Playbook is on it. They keep an eye on all your finances and adjust your plan accordingly. It's rare, very, very rare, that a finance app 
thinks about your finances as a whole. That's your all your finances, your taxes, your savings, and all your life financial goals. Whether it's a wedding, a family trip, donating to charity, or the FIRE lifestyle, Playbook helps you get there faster. So what's my favorite Playbook feature? I really like the way in which the app shows me all my accounts, all my goals, and all my progress in a single place, instead of having to log on to 10 different confusing finance apps. Uh, Automatica contribution to my Roth IRA and travel fund uh, every month. The playbook impact. It tracks and predicts how old I'll be when I can stop working forever. So get on the road to financial freedom. Go to helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. And with my unique link, helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on, you get a free playbook impact. It predicts how much your net worth could grow if you start today. Helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. Playbook to financial freedom and beyond. So how did you um, how did you do it? A lot of people are going to be watching this and ah, oh, I wish I could be like Jordan and, and write a travel book. Did you get the deal on the book first or did you just go to um, Colombia and take a risk? Did you have some savings? Well, so this book was, um, I mean, it would only have been possible because it was my senior thesis. Um, at you, were, uh, you were a student at Princeton. And Correct. What, what was your major at Princeton? So I studied in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese Latin American Studies. And the benefit of that and why I did that was because they had generous research funding to be able to do projects like this. So this was actually funded by Princeton University's thesis pro uh, program and various departments there. That's how I was able to actually make this trip. Um, I also think that when people think about travel writing, sometimes they think about the Lonely Planet guides and going on vacation. But um, a lot of the places where I went aren't necessarily places where anybody visits at all. They're places where regular people live. Um, but they're not necessarily destinations. And so it's kind of a mix of, of journalism and travel literature and just a journey that uh, uses the river as a thread to connect disparate people and cultures and, and stories. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a spectacular uh, debut, um, Jordan. Uh, everyone, I think, uh, listening or watching will want to read it because you have an important new voice and a very distinctive voice. The other voice along with Jordan Salama in this book, is the voice of the Magdalena River, uh, the heroine of the book. Tell me about this river, its geography, its history, its politics. Definitely. So the Magdalena is very much a character in this book, as it is a character in Love in the Time of Cholera and lots of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's amazing novels, which many of the people who I met along the Magdalena claimed kind of vehemently to be um, the real true stories of their lives, even though it was fiction. Um, the Magdalena runs for 950 miles through the heart of Colombia from high in the Andes to the Caribbean Sea. It flows from south to north. 
in the central part of the country. So it and, goes, we're looking at a map now for people yes. watching. Um, what are the main towns the Magdalena goes through? It doesn't go through Bogotá or Cali mm. or, or Medellín, does it? No, it kind of it runs between those cities in a valley. So Bogotá is an Andean city in one of the three Andean ranges of, of Colombia. And the Magdalena runs through a central valley um, between Bogotá and where you see Ibagué is a city next to it. Um, you could probably see in this, yeah, you can see in this map that it runs a thread there. But some of the cities, if you look down in the kind of southern part of the country, there's a place called Pitalito. That's a town near nearer to the source of the yeah, river. Yeah, I can see that. So that, it goes all the way, uh, and, and then it unloads um, in Up Barranquilla. Exactly, on the Caribbean Sea. So it passes, if you go back to the map, if you can, um, it passes through the city of Neiva, which is on this map. Yeah, so it, it covers the up. whole country. I mean, it practically runs from north to south. From south to north, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, north, from south, south to north. To north. And then, um, so how many miles? What, give me some geographical facts. How does it compare to the Amazon in Definitely. terms of length? Well, it's much shorter than the Amazon. I'm actually not sure what the length of the Amazon is, but exactly, but I know that it's much longer than the Magdalena. The Magdalena, I guess, is relatively short for a river, maybe. It's 950 miles long, um, but it's still a major river of, of cultural, historic, and geographical importance in the country. It's the central waterway. A lot of people call it the central artery through the heart of, of the nation. And That's what strikes me about the geography is it just run, it runs, I mean, obviously... Um the northern part of South America has many countries, but it only goes through one country. It doesn't touch on Panama or Venezuela or Ecuador. So it's uniquely Colombian. Correct. And one of my favorite parts about the river is that it, it cuts such a cross-section of what makes Colombia such a special country, which is uh, it's the second most biodiverse country in the world. It's home to a kaleidoscope of landscapes and ecosystems. So the Magdalena itself runs from the high Andes into the foothills of the Andes in past deserts and savannas through what used to be jungles, but have since been deforested. Um, and then it loses itself in a, in a mess of swampland before it finally regains shape and makes it to the Caribbean Sea. So, you know, in the span of less than a thousand miles, you're, you know, crossing these amazing landscapes and places that harbor vast numbers of species and kind of important carbon sinks for the climate crisis. And so it's a river of great significance. Also, it was a very important river in the past, especially for transportation from the coast to the capital. Like you said, it doesn't reach Bogota, but it reaches a point very close that then um, mules or a railroad later on were able to take people from the shores of the river to the capital. But for a long time, it was the only way to make it from the capital to the sea. Um, and that's why it kind of gained such prominence. Uh, we're going to take a break for a moment, um, uh, and uh, we're, we're going to come back. We'll talk more about the river. We'll talk about Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and we'll talk about the environmental issues increasingly surrounding um, uh, surrounding this river and indeed the broader theme of rivers and, and the environment in the 21st century. So we'll be back with Jordan Salama. Every day the river changes. Uh, Jordan, just wait a second and we'll, we'll be back in one in one minute. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing 
to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Kino. We are talking with Jordan uh, Salama, the author of Every Day the River Changes, uh, a four-week, uh, an account of his four-week trip down the Magdalena River in, in Colombia, very, uh, a, 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 a very encouraging, exciting uh, debut book by uh, the young writer. Uh, Jordan, you touched uh, in the first part of the show on the environment. Um, what did you find on the Magdalena? Uh, the Amazon's been in the news, of course, a lot in terms of the destruction um, uh, of much of the natural habitat of Brazil. Did you find the same in Colombia? Unfortunately, that is very much the story of the, the Magdalena. So as I'd mentioned earlier, the Magdalena used to be this navigable river where past stories from past centuries would describe these beautiful journeys by boat through buzzing jungles and these vibrant, again, ecosystems. And some of those ecosystems definitely are still there and need protecting. But in large part, a lot of the river has been plundered and pillaged. Um, there's been kind of massive amounts of deforestation along its banks um, to feed the, the boilers of the steamboats. Um, as a result, there's been lots of sedimentation of the river, um, which has made it shallow and very, very difficult to navigate by boat. So in that sense, uh, the navigability of the river is what killed the river too. I mean, people did. And um, and so there's this sense that a lot has been lost, but there's also a sense that there's still everything yet to lose. The Magdalena still is home to manatees and rare endangered endemic river turtles and other kinds of species that, that need protection. It passes by a mountain range called the San Lucas Mountains, which are extremely, extremely important um, uh, sinks of uh, sinks, uh, extremely important centers of biodiversity that are yet to be explored and discovered um, by scientists. And so one of the hopes while I was along the river is that the easing of the conflict might allow um, more scientific uh, discoveries and, and, and work towards conservation uh, along this river. But unfortunately, what has happened in the last five years since that peace deal has also been um, that armed groups have moved in to where the FARC has vacated in largely rural areas. And lots of uh, 
dangerous, environmentally dangerous um, resource extraction projects have popped up, such as illegal mining, deforestation, um, oil exploration, and things like that. So it's very much still an ecosystem under threat, even despite all of the the loss that has happened in the past 70, 80 years. In the introduction to the show, uh, Jordan, I mentioned that uh, the UN chief is in uh, Colombia to celebrate the, the end of the Civil War and is focusing on economic opportunities. Um, uh, what kind of economic opportunities, particularly in the Magdalena River area, um, would benefit not just the country and the community, but also the environment? What, what, what arguments would you make in terms of, shall we say, a, a Green New Deal for the Magdalena River? Yeah, I think that it's important to, to emphasize the fact that these communities are at the same time the least responsible for all of our climate catastrophes, but also bearing the brunt of all of the wealthy world has, has done um, to cause this this chaos. So that's one thing to keep in mind always. But when it comes to economic opportunities in rural parts of Colombia, like kind of many areas of the Magdalena, a big issue uh, that is brought on both by the geography of the place and by uh, the nature of the violence over the past 50 years is that the government, the state, doesn't really reach. Um, in one stretch of the river where I was in the Andes, uh, lots of homes doubled as general stores because there just wasn't that much infrastructure in the place to provide hygiene products or food staples. So there's lots to be done. Um, there's lots of work needed, but the investment has to be there um, in order to make that viable. And as a result, if those kinds of more legitimate areas of work are able to, to, to come to fruition, then people won't be turning to working for maybe uh, less legitimate actors or more destructive actors, such as the oil industry or the cattle ranching industry and, and things like that. But at the moment, those that's what makes people a living. And it's difficult uh, for people to kind of reconcile the two things as it contributes to the destruction of the place where they live. So, Jordan, uh, um, in this post-FARC Colombia, where politics perhaps hopefully is becoming more complicated, I found some interesting headlines uh, in the post. Colombia is pitting two vulnerable groups against each other, in indigenous Colombians and other, other communities, a similar headline about uh, Colombia's indigenous activists who are protecting the environment. They now are under threat. What is What, what are the the politics of the environment did you find in your trip to the Magdalena, and particularly when it comes to indigenous communities and the, and the rediscovery of their own history in a in a in a pre uh, a pre colonial world. Certainly. So one of the at the beginning of the book, near the beginning of the book, I journey into the Andes with a renowned Colombian anthropologist named Luis Manuel Salamanca, and he guides me. Uh, in search of megalithic statues that were date back to like the first century AD um, and are remnants of this amazing indigenous pre-Hispanic culture that thrived in the Andean regions of, of Colombia. And Luis dedicated his life to preserving these cultural envir and environmental treasures. He was murdered a year after I met him. Uh, this man, Luis Manuel Salamanca, uh, someone who I spent a significant amount of time with, and it's part of a broader trend, which one of the articles that you showed, uh, you know, demonstrates, which is that many activists, environmentalists, especially indigenous and Afro-Colombian environmentalists and other kinds of what they call social leaders in Colombia, 
are under grave danger because of precisely this failure to um, to uh, fill the vacuum that has been left behind by the vacating FARC. So all these armed groups that come in and are looking to take advantage of the rich natural resources of the country are being pitted against the people who feel like they have a once in a generation chance to, to protect them. So someone like Luis Manuel Salamanca, whose work is seemingly innocuous, he was a scientist and anthropologist who defended you know, uh, archeological artifacts um, could then get caught in these power uh, struggles. And as a result, I think something like more than 1,250 uh, activists of all kinds have been killed since the 2016 peace deal. And that's a huge problem in, in Colombia. It means that the defenders of the environment are, are being killed and yeah. Jordan, uh, the one person many Americans will have heard of, one famous Colombian is Pablo Escobar, um, the drug king who of course is no longer alive. Did you find out anything about Escobar? You mentioned him in the book. Yeah, I think that so much has been written about Colombia with Escobar in mind. Um, and Escobar is so front of mind for so many people who, who think about the country, especially in the United States, that actually, if it was up to me, I would have left him out. But the truth is that he's so pervasive, his influence is so pervasive in, in the country and in society that it's impossible to leave him out of a story like this. But I just tried to graze it because I think there's a lot out there. And again, this is a briskly paced travelogue, um, an adventure story that tries to introduce you to many different kinds of people who are working for positive change in their in their communities. But the way in which I interact with Escobar is this kind of um, very, very strange story, which is that when he was uh, in his heyday, he had a zoo, a private zoo in his house, in his estate. And among the animals that he had at the zoo were four hippopotamuses. Um, and when he was killed, the hippopotamuses escaped into a tributary of the Magdalena River. And now there are hundreds of them living wild. The only in wild invasive hippopotamuses living outside of Africa live in the Magdalena River. And I saw them with my own eyes. I went out with a group of biologists and community um, activists who are working towards solving this problem. Because while these hippopotamuses appear in the news all the time as kind of a cartoonish, quote unquote, funny story, the reality on the ground is that it's actually an extremely dangerous situation. These animals are aggressive. I met with farmers who were chased off their land by hippopotamuses in South America. And that, I think, alone says that um, this this is a problem that is very complicated and needs solving. So I spoke with the people who are trying to figure out solutions. You, um, your book is um, a nonfiction narrative, of course. Yes. But um, perhaps, as Gabriel Garcia Marquez reminded us, the distinction between fiction and nonfiction is often quite a tricky one, especially in Latin America. Here's the great man, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And of course, he's the author of Love in the Time of Cora and The General in His Labyrinth, both and many other books, both of these books set in Colombia. He himself was born in Colombia and he invented a town called Macondo, uh, which was the, the fictional version of uh, Aracanac, Ara. Kataka, uh, which was where he was born. Um, you, you, of course, you, you can't write a book about Colombia without mentioning Marquez, especially a, a literary young man like yourself. What did you learn about Marquez in this four-week trip? What did I learn? I learned that he's my favorite writer. <laughs> um, well, you, I, I assume you knew that before you went. You know, it's funny that he was definitely a writer who I admired, and I love 100 Years of Solitude, but I think that 
traveling through the areas that were so formative for him. The Magdalena was the river of his life, of his childhood. Um, it made me appreciate and respect him in a way that I don't think I um, ever would have had I not gone. Why? Well, what is it about uh, traveling, uh, traveling down or up the Magdalena that made you appreciate uh, Marquez so much more? This is where I geek out as kind of a writer and, and admiring the craft of, of people like him. But um, you just realize that even though his stories are fiction, it's almost, I think he has a quote at some point in an interview at, at one point in his life where he said every single word and every single one of his books is true um, because they're all based in these realities of his life or of people he knew. Um, they're just massaged. And that's what magical realism is. It's real life with tinges of, of magic. And, um, and so traveling down the river, you see the sources of these creations of his. For example, in a town called Mompos, which is near the end of the river in the Caribbean region, um, I met a man who sat for 79 years at his front stoop and weaved silver and gold filigree fishes, filigree being, being this ancient art of, of uh, silver and gold jewelry that comes from Mesopotamia and, and, and Spain. Um, but this man sat there for <laughs> eight decades and did this. Um, and of course, in 100 Years of Solitude, there's a character called the Colonel Aureliano Buendia who dies making these these fishes over and over and over again. And of course they're filigree fishes. So again, there's these, uh, there it's all exaggerated in the magical realist way, but I think so much of it is rooted in, in everyday life. And that very everyday life is what I try to chronicle in this book. And, 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 and the book itself has a, a, a magically realistic title. Every day the river changes. Um, is that a local saying or did you make it up? That was actually something that somebody said to me along the river. Um, the full quote, which is in the book, uh, this man whose father was a, a esteemed boat captain in the heyday of the river, he says, every day the river changes, you can never say you know the Magdalena. And that in that context was because he tried to take over his father's boat company, but really it's failed because the river is not very navigable anymore and is no longer what it used to be in terms of this fluvial artery for, for transport and commerce. And so um, it changed for him and his family, but also across the book, you can see that it's changing for others too. That could have been a quote that Marquez came up with. Um, Jordan, I know uh, you have an interesting background. Some of your family is from the Middle East, from Iraq. Uh, other part of your family is from Argentina, and you're a, a big football fan, uh, mm -hmm. English or Latin American football rather than American football, which has nothing to do with the feet or the ball. Um, or anything else for that matter. Uh, speaking of Escobars, you said you tried to avoid uh, Pablo Escobar. I think you did a pretty good job with the book. What about the other Colombian Escobar, Andres Escobar? Another very sad story. Perhaps you might mention this and, and, and tell me about your love of football and the general love of football in Colombia itself, which you found. Certainly. So I didn't actually mention Andres Escobar in this book, but his story, if, for those who don't know, is that he scored an own goal in the 1994 FIFA World Cup um, and then was murdered. Which was in back, America. Which was in America, right? United and, States. Yep. And then he was murdered when he came back um, in a tragic turn of events. So there's a movie called, I think, The Two Escobars. Have yeah, you seen which, which, which speaks of, again, the crisis of the state and, and all the rest yeah. of the things you talked about earlier. Yeah. But for me, uh, football or soccer uh, is a hugely important 
part of my life. I think because when you do a project like this, you need to to forge trust and connections and build bridges with the people who you meet in a place that's very much not your own, where you're very much an outsider. And a lot of the ways that I did it was through two things, soccer and music. Um, when it comes to soccer, either playing or going to games, I went to a, a semifinal of the Colombian League Cup um, where this, these two teams, Atletico Huila and Patriotas de Boyacá, were playing against each other in the semifinal. It went to penalty shootouts. And after the home team won, uh, there was a pitch invasion with tear gas, and it was this whole big thing. That was definitely something I'll never forget. Um, and then just like memories of playing games along the banks of the river or in towns, uh, kind of all along its its stretch were wonderful things that I'll never forget. Um, but it was a way in. It was just a way to connect with people. And I think that that's something that football can do all around the world. Well, you've done a great job, Jordan, I think, with this book, uh, which, is a, which is a way in, a very unusual, original, beautifully written way into contemporary life in, in um, Colombia. Every day the river changes, four weeks down the Magdalena. I think it's going to be the beginning of a very distinguished literary career. So congratulations on that. Thanks. You're in Pelham at the moment, um, just outside New York. What else should people be reading in November 2021? What's on your reading list, Jordan, in addition, um, of course, to Marquez, who can Yes. Never really be uh, who, 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 who there's no. I agree with you. There's no competition with Marcus. There's no competition except probably the Magdalena River. You've made me want to go there, although I think I'm uh, too old, not brave enough to actually trek down it like you did. Well, there's certain parts of it where it's very, very uh, accessible and beautiful and just wonderful places. You'll have to give me some uh, suggestions. Definitely will do. In terms of what I'm reading these days, I love, as you could probably tell by this point, good adventure stories. Um, and I think that there's so much to be said about this kind of new potential in travel writing in, in the world um, and what it can do. Instead of othering people as it maybe has in the past, I think that there's tremendous possibility to connect people and to talk about global problems and global solutions in a way that's very human and that makes sense of, of, of these issues through journeys and through connections. One of those books that I think does a really good job is called A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change um, mm. by Debbie Lockwood. Do you know her? I, I, that sounds like a really good book, good person to have on the show. You should definitely have her on the show. I'm actually doing an event with her virtually on December 9th mm. uh, at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. That would be 8.30 p.m. Eastern time on Zoom with a bookstore called Book Passage in San Francisco. Um, but she's a uh, you know a friend of mine, and her book is fantastic because she travels the world largely by bicycle, seeking out local voices about climate change, and it's just so well done. Um, that's something that I'm in right now, and recently other adventure stories that I've loved. There's one also you should have him on the show, uh, Jay Perini's book called Borges and Me. It wow. came out a year ago, um, but I keep going back to it. Right now I'm writing something about Argentina especially, so that's why I'm thinking about it a lot. But it's the story of a young Jay Perini's uh, road trip through the Scottish Highlands with Jorge Luis Borges, of course, the great Argentine writer. Um, as a student, he, he's a student, uh, master student at St. Andrews in Scotland. And Borges comes as a visitor and he's kind of tasked with like babysitting. So this is a true story. So he it's actually true, went. It's a true story. Wow. Got to get him on the show. Wow. Real pleasure, Jordan, to have you on the show again. Congratulations on this new book. Uh, every day the river changes, uh, four weeks down the Magdalena, uh, a lovely book. You can read it in two or three hours. It's beautifully written, poignant, relevant, 
important. Thanks again. Keep well, Jordan. And we'll have those two people on and we'll have you on in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.